If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Endurance running is a pastime that's growing in popularity. But the idea of running for hours on end for fun also saw a boom after the First World War, possibly as a reaction to the horrors of the conflict. Our content director and keen endurance runner David Musgrove spoke to Dr Jonathan Westaway about this story, particularly about how it played out in the English Lake District. During the COVID pandemic lockdown, one slightly surprising response was that a lot of long-distance running records were broken. Ultra-endurance athletes with no formal races to compete in took to attempting fastest known time records over a range of long-distance routes over often arduous mountainous terrain in Snowdonia, the English Lake District, over the Scottish mountains, a lot of places in between. Now, a similar burst of interest in feats of endurance took place in the aftermath of the First World War in the English Lake District, where the 24-hour fell race record was challenged. Uh, There are some interesting parallels to explore with that story in today's efforts, uh, and I'm going to consider them with Dr Jonathan Westaway from the University of Central Lancashire, who has researched the subject of endurance attempts. So, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Pleasure, pleasure. Good to talk to you. So um, let's orientate ourselves. Um, just just for our, our, our international uh, listeners, can you remind us where the Lake District is uh, in, in the geography of England? Sure, yeah. It's in the northwest of England. It's an upland massif uh, and the um, what we now call in the county of Cumbria. Uh, it used to be the counties of Cumberland, Westmoreland and Lancashire. And it really is the kind of heartland of the British outdoor movement, the home of mountaineering. Um, and it's got a you know very strong uh, kind of outdoor community there with people interested in 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 the hills, mountaineering, climbing, running, walking, things like this. And a, a, a beautiful place to visit. Uh, probably be very busy this summer with uh, with our lockdown, um, but uh, nevertheless a beautiful place to visit. So, what was or is the the Lake District twenty four hour fell record that I mentioned earlier? Well, it's more commonly known today as the, as the Bob Graham round, uh, which is. Uh, um, a kind of 24-hour race around as many hills as possible in the Lake District. I think currently the record is 78 summits, um, starting in one place in at the Moot Hall in Keswick and finishing back at the Moot Hall in Keswick and doing an enormous uh, circular route around the Lake District, taking in all these summits. Um, but it, uh, Bob Graham was a was a Lake District um, hotelier and guest house owner who who uh, first. Uh, put his put his name to this uh, attempt, but there's a long history going back, you know, thirty or forty years before Bob Graham's 1932 attempt to establish this record, um, and numerous people, uh, you know, prop up in this story. You know, Dr. Arthur Wakefield, who was uh, a, a GP who lived in the Lake District, who established the record in 1905. Uh, and then a Manchester engineer, Eustace Thomas, who took the record again, 1920 and 1922. And this uh, attempt at endurance uh, running feats in the hills, you know, developed over a long period of time, really from the 1870s onwards. Uh, and nowadays it's become an established kind of ultra running feature uh, event in the Lake District. Okay, so we're looking back into the the mid late Victorian period for the for the origins of this, are we? That's right. Yeah, yeah. We can see um, certainly from the eighteen seventies onwards. You know, there's an enormous interest in um, attempts to uh, have long distance events in the hills, but it's really drawing on a much broader history of competitive pedestrianism. Races often involving gambling and betting with very working class routes in the north of England. So there's been some fantastic work being done at Manchester Metropolitan University by uh, Dave Day and Samantha Oldfield about the history of uh, working class competitive pedestrianism strongly associated with, with pubs and with gambling, often with their own uh, grounds for competitions and these pedestrian events would often last for days you know or they'd be run over set distances and they always attracted huge crowds and some of these uh, professional pedestrians in the middle of the 19th century became great celebrities you know there was uh, the famous case of Deerfoot who was a Native American Seneca uh, person who came over to the UK and won all the running races in the UK against all comers over any distance. So there was this huge kind of working class culture of running and foot races, walking races as well, 
And then in the Lake District, um, there were guides races. So hotels often had um, uh, guides who would take tourists out for walks. Uh, and then at summer sporting events, these guides would race over the fells often for money as well. Uh, and there was also a strong tradition of um, hunting on foot as well with fox uh, packs and otter otter hounds as well, where particularly in the Lake District, where it was impossible to ride horses uh, to hounds, uh, people would follow the hounds on foot as well over the fells. So there were all these kinds of um, uh, very rich uh, kind of working class, rural working class kind of professional um, kind of racing cultures going on. But then towards the uh, end of the 19th century, we start to see tourists in the Lake District, tourists with alpine mountaineering experience, and they start to look at the fells in a new way and think about challenging themselves uh, uh, to come up with, um, you know, endurance races uh, that pit themselves against the nature of the terrain. And where does is cycling sort of part of this tradition as well? The idea, the, the, the burgeoning growth in long distance cycling, and in one of your research papers, you've talked about uh, gigantism as a as a concept as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, cycling um, embraced this this idea of endurance events, and towards the end of the nineteenth century, you know, in eighteen ninety six, you get the it, the marathon being reintroduced into the Olympics, but then you also see the emergence of these extreme long-distance cycling events with the Tour de France, of course, being established in about 1903, 1904, somewhere around there. You know, in America, you have endurance events, cycling events at places like Madison Square Garden, you know, where people are cycling uh, for 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours at a go, or, uh, you know, attempting 1,000-kilometer records, time records, things like this. Uh and the innovations uh, that, that cyclists kind of bring to these endurance events, you know, in terms of nutrition, training, uh, clothing, uh, recovery, you can see them starting to be applied by amateur fell runners in the hills to the problem of long distance fell running. So... Okay, so so the motivation of these sort of early endurance athletes, if if that's an appropriate um, phrase to use, mm-hmm. um, yeah. was was fame, was money, was self improvement. I mean, you've talked about various aspects there. What, what what was driving people to want to do this? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, of course, you know, absolutely nobody has to go up a mountain. Uh, you know, so there's a fundamental question about how these leisure cultures emerge. Um, I think there's a certain amount of competitive rivalry amongst members of regional mountaineering and outdoor groups. Um, And there's also a certain amount of uh, imaginative rehearsal for larger mountaineering and endurance challenges. So if we think about the upper middle classes in the north of England, um, they would have been able to have afforded maybe an alpine holiday. They would have had the time for a holiday in the Alps and to have gone mountaineering in August, you know, maybe for a month. Uh, But for most of the year, their local hills were the only hills they had access to. Uh, And they were also extremely proud of their local hills, Pennines around Manchester, you know, um, and the hills of industrial Lancashire, you know, the Lake District. And so we can begin to see them starting to think about 
the upland hinterlands of the northern industrial cities as a leisure space, a leisure space in which they can kind of rehearse uh, their ambitions for um, the greater ranges, the Himalayas, the Alps, you know, and they start to set themselves uh, physical challenges, pitting themselves against the terrain uh, and the limits of human endurance as well. And then imaginatively, you know, thinking about how these might be applied in other circumstances, you know. And one thing that I've particularly focused on is the conquest of Everest uh, and the physiological demands that makes on the human body. This all this all feels quite modern when you describe it like this. You, you don't um, you don't imagine, or you know, maybe I'm being uh, naive, but you don't imagine people at uh, 100, 150 years ago would have had enough leisure time to uh, to be able to engage in these activities. But but clearly, there were quite a few people who did. Uh, yeah, I think we have to be careful here. You know, the vast majority of the population were working class. You know, over seventy percent. Their lives would have been constrained by you know, uh, the, the world of uh, of work. And they had very little leisure time, you know, in the factories uh, of Northern England, uh, they had wakes weeks where the whole factories would go on holiday together. They would close down and they'd go to the seaside. Uh, the people who are accessing the hills of the Lake District in this period are really the middle classes and the upper middle classes. They're the professional classes, the salary classes. They're people who may have uh, a few days holiday at Easter and Whitson and possibly a few weeks holiday in the summer as well in August. Um, And, you know, so, uh, yeah, people are very constrained uh, by the amount of free leisure time they have. uh, And of course, that just adds to the importance of your regional upland hinterlands around these industrial cities in the north of England. Um, You know, People in Manchester used to look up to the Pennines, you know, and they were described by one commentator as the ramparts of paradise, you know, because that was where you could begin to explore, you know, leisure cultures and have time off from work and, you know, find new forms of expression and identity. Perhaps we'll come back to the class dimension to the to this story in, in a minute. But l- looking at the at the specific characters in the sort of the Lake District story, you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, Arthur Wakefield. So he was he was professional. He was a medical doctor, right? Absolutely, yeah. He was uh, the son of uh, a very eminent Kendall uh, banking family. Uh, he went to Sedba School, uh, a, a private school uh, in the Howgills, near the Howgills, um, which had a, a very long tradition of fell running. Uh, they still do today. Uh, he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, and then he did a medical degree. Uh, he fought in the Boer War. He fought in the um, in the uh, First World War, uh, in the Royal Army Medical Corps, I believe. Um, yes, but um, he was very much uh, from an upper middle class background. Yeah. And he, he was the chap who set set the record for the uh, for the fell record in what nineteen oh five? Was that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, a, a, a superb sportsman you know he was blue at cambridge you know he rode he boxed very fit uh whilst he was a gp in the lake district he swam every day uh in derwent water now i've just come across a photograph of him actually um he spent some time between about 1908 and 1914 in the grenfell missions in labrador uh which was an anglican uh medical mission uh, to the Inuit in in Labrador, um, 
who were living at the time, you know, in in terrible conditions, really prone to epidemics, and um, you know, neglected by by the Canadian state. So uh, yeah, and I found a photograph of him um, swimming in the sea, diving off an iceberg, looking incredibly fit you know, as a young man. And that's very poignant because, you know, he was on the 1922 Everest expedition uh, as, a, as a medical officer and uh, other members of the expedition uh, frequently criticised him for his, his shattered nerves because he had been through the First World War and, you know, he was clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um. Okay, and what, what about Eustace Thomas, this this other person you mentioned who set the record um, following Wakefield? Yeah, so um, Wakefield's record, just to just to um, characterise it a bit, was I think in about twenty two and a half hours um, he he'd run round um, you know a substantial part of the Lake District and and covered you know nearly nearly forty summits or something like that. How many miles um, are we talking? Uh, we are. <laughs> uh, that's a good question probably in the region of 60 miles or something like that. But um, Thomas was from a very different class, really, uh, from Wakefield, although they became good friends. He uh, was an engineer. He had his own engineering company in Manchester, but he had been to Finsbury Technical College. That was his, um, that was his main education. But after the war, I think he did reasonably well during the war, out of war work, uh, and he was suitably independent after the war, that he could devote his energies to uh, focusing on um, trying to break some of these 24-hour uh, endurance records in the Lake District. Uh, he was actually trained by Arthur Wakefield. He spent about eight weeks in the Lake District with him, took a very scientific approach to his preparation, um, developed uh, a, a vegetarian diet, used massage, breathing techniques, new equipment, uh, and, and took a very um, um, structured approach to addressing this challenge, uh, uh, the 24-hour challenge in the Lake District. So again, that sounds that sounds very modern, doesn't it? Really, you know, real focus on scientific methods and, and vegetarianism. You know, actually, you, you describe it as muscular vegetarianism, don't you? So, so tell us a bit more about about how 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 that worked. Um, yeah. So Thomas Eustace Thomas uh, drew on the medical theories of uh, a Manchester uh, doctor called Alfred Mumford, who was also a medical examiner worked with the Manchester Grammar School, did a lot of kind of anthropometric testing um, of uh, people during the First World War uh, and had some very um, advanced theories about what he called vital capacity, the importance of lung capacity um, and uh, general fitness. Very focused on the body as a machine that could be improved very focused on physiological development rather than more psychological arguments, uh, you know, about willpower and kind of it's some kind of uh, innate vital uh, essence that would enable you to do these uh, long distance uh, events. So Mumford was very, very focused on on physiological improvement. And, you know, Thomas, as an engineer, you know, as somebody who built machines, thought of the human body as a machine that needed fuel, that needed to maximise its, what we'd call now VO2, you know, in terms of lung capacity and things like this. So they very much worked on 
a, a kind of a machine kind of model. The human body is a machine that can be uh, uh, improved to undertake these kind of endurance events. And, and in this, I think we can really see, you know, there's a lot of experimental innovation going on here in the regional outdoor movement, you know, and we're, um, I think what we're looking at is, you know, some of the origins of sports science really in the UK. Mm-hmm. Well, that, well, that was going to be my next question. How far do these ideas and, and, and their research and their methods sort of stack up with with what modern endurance athletes do? Were, were they sort of on the right lines with their with their training methods? Um, yeah, you know, I'm no expert uh, in in uh, sports physiology, but um, the real problem with these endurance events over 24 hours is the body's ability to sustain itself. Um, and fuel itself. So Thomas, you know, Thomas took up a vegetarian diet. Um, He he wasn't a keen vegetarian. He wasn't a principled vegetarian, but he realised that actually this food was more digestible when the body is actually, you know, uh, working at its extremes and that you don't want to kind of overstress uh, your um, digestive system, but at the same time, you need easy-to-digest foods that will keep you going. And of course, one of the keys we know with ultra distance athletes these days is it's really hard to keep fueling the body, to keep drinking, to do it regularly, to be able to to have foods that you can take in that are easy to digest. So Eustace Thomas in particular was, was very focused on this need to fuel the engine of the body. You know, he comes at it from an engineering background you know, he works with local medics to kind of understand the problem of um, sustaining effort over this long period of time. Did um, did Eustace Thomas kind of become a, a champion for vegetarians and the vegetarian movement as a consequence of that? Did he become sort of famous for vegetarianism? No, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, he did draw on um, the works of famous vegetarians like Eustace Miles, you know, who ran his own vegetarian restaurant in London and promoted a lot of kind of health and life reform um, kind of methods and was hugely successful at the time. There were organisations like the Vegetarian Cycling and Athletics Club, you know, uh, in the UK, um, who would have been heavily promoting vegetarianism as a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a strong alternative a lifestyle that doesn't, uh, you know, critically what they were arguing all the time is that actually vegetarianism makes you stronger and fitter and healthier and can last longer. And, uh, you know, so there was, there was an enormous amount of um, kind of body cultivation and life reform methods that were being put together and experimented with by, um, you know, contemporary athletes. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I think he cut out the toes of some of his uh, plimp soles, uh, put aeroplane cloth over the toes so his toes didn't rub, uh, put aluminium reinforcements in his shoes with horsehair padding and things like this. Um, He would use... um, patented nose expanders which opened your nostrils so you could get more air into your lungs and things like this we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, um, so Eustace Thomas is... Um, uh, Attempts on the on the record are, are after the First World War. Um, yeah. So he he breaks the record in in 1920. I think you said is that right? That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what's the what's the context here? Obviously that we've got this interwar period between the First World War and the Second World War. Um, a, a kind of you know a shattered society. A lot of people. A lot of shattered people. Um, what's is is that part of the dynamic here? What's what's the story there? Yeah, I think there's a very personal motivation for Thomas, Eustace Thomas. Um, he um, he knows Wakefield and he greatly admires Wakefield. Uh, he's been part of this kind of strenuous rambling scene in uh, the Pennines and in Manchester in particular for a long time. They've been developing long distance endurance walking events, hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know, around the Derwent watershed or from Buxton up to North Lancashire or across across the Welsh hills, you know, uh, doing all the Welsh 3000ers. And they're constantly pushing at the boundaries of how much can be done in a certain period of time. Um, And Wakefield was kind of the poster boy, you know, for for these guys who were experimenting with these new forms of endurance, pedestrianism uh, and running. So Thomas, Eustace Thomas, has these personal motivations to, you know, he greatly admires Wakefield. There's been this developing culture uh, of long distance um, walking events, running events. Uh, But in the post-war period, there's a strong kind of cultural and psychological need, I think, to um, address the issue of broken bodies and broken minds of the men who came back. And, you know, we can see the forming of the Mount Everest Committee in 1919, you know, with this strong desire to climb Everest, uh, is part of this uh, attempt to reassert kind of superiority of a kind of shattered um, belief in masculinity. Uh, You know, bodies have been damaged, minds have been damaged by shell shock, 
So Thomas is particularly interested in Everest, I think. Wakefield, who became his friend, you know, was chosen to go on the Everest reconnaissance expedition in 1921. And then he eventually went in 1922 on the first attempt to climb Everest. And I think Eustace Thomas always felt that he was should have been chosen for that expedition, uh, that he was fit enough that he demonstrated in 1922 in particular by completing 30,000 feet in just over 24 hours in a Lake District long distance event, you know, that, that he had the physiological capability to climb Everest. So there's that very personal approach from, from Thomas in the context of this post-war need for reconstruction, reconstruction of society, but also reconstruction of kind of, uh, you know, no, notions of um, masculinity and fitness. Uh, of course, the First World War, I think particularly the psychological damage of the First World War was such a, was such a driver towards these things, you know. Prior to the war, people had talked a lot about, you know, endurance uh, and masculinity being based on um, internal vital uh, concepts like, you know, the will, you know, but, but you know, shell shock and industrial <clears throat> kind of warfare had actually uh, shown that men could be broken, you know, and they could be psychologically broken as well. So, um, yeah, I think there there is a strong need to demonstrate human endurance in the context of what had gone on in the first world war so so this is a this is a broader thing uh theme than than just eustace thomas this is you see this as a as a broader reaction in society to you know the the the, the very obvious and genuine horrors of, of a global conflict and, and people trying to find a way to, to to accommodate themselves to that through endurance running racing pedestrianism that sort of thing I think, yeah, in some sense, you know, that, that the First World War was an industrialised, mechanised war and the machine was preeminent, you know. And, and you can see in Eustace Thomas's, you know, use of some of Mumford's physiological research and he, coming from his engineering background, he, he's actually applying a kind of machinic modernism to the human body, you know. Um, he He wants to do his kind of homework and his research and work out how the human body as a machine can be um, inured and kind of annealed and kind of strengthened through uh, training techniques, diet, massage, uh, breathing techniques, you know, all these kind of innovations that could be brought to bear on on, uh, endurance uh, sporting events, yeah, and the, the context here also um, is 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 an imperial one. Britain at the time was was an imperial power, um, still had an empire <laughs> to protect, even in the aftermath of the First World War. Is there an, is there any sort of imperial story here in terms of people demonstrating that the British people have, have, have the appropriate fitness and uh, stamina to, to rule an empire or anything like that? Well, certainly, I think the whole campaign for Everest from 1921 to 1924 was very much about demonstrating Britain's imperial fitness to rule British India. Uh, you know, the Manchester Guardian leader writer um, C.E. Montague uh, once described Everest as a great white watchtower over imperial India. Um, you know, Everest was not in the British Empire, but, you know, it was within its orbit, you know, and... 
people saw um, the campaign for Everest. If Britain was, if the British were successful in climbing Everest, that would really um, come to mark a major achievement in and demonstrate some of those uh, supposed characteristics of superiority and fitness to rule, which they felt, um, you know, underpinned British rule uh, in India. You can see this also going on in the Lake District as well at the time. There were a number of uh, games, manhunting games, that were run over the hills of the Lake District by some of these mountaineering clubs and groups. Um, one of them was called Hare and Hounds. Another one was called Scouts and Outposts. You know, and particularly the latter one, Scouts and Outposts, was pati- absolutely modelled on um, military warfare manuals from the northwest frontier province of India, uh, particularly on a book by a chap called Colonel Coolwell called Small Wars, uh, which detailed how you were to conduct um, small wars of empire throughout the empire. Um, you know, so we can see the regional middle classes really thinking about their position uh, within the empire, questioning imperial rule, you know, uh, using kind of some of these manhunting games to um, investigate what it may have been like to have been a subjugated and subaltern people as well, you know, to experience the process of predation uh, because these games involved, you know, uh, chasing and capturing um, uh, participants. So the the British imperial experience in microcosm in the Lake District then, by the sound of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We must never forget, of course, that the, we think of the Lake District today as, you know, uh, a largely rural, uh, bucolic, pastoral uh, uh, and highly culturally, you know, valorised landscape. Uh, it was surrounded by major industrial areas, you know, very close to the centre of the Lake District. So Barrow in Furness, you know, uh, um, on the southwest tip of Cumbria today, you know, was a major industrial centre, you know, making submarines, armaments, um, you know, uh, military hardware. Uh, and of course, a lot of the workforce uh, in the Barrow shipyards, you know, would go to the Lake District and and be climbers and walkers, and you know, uh, bring some of that with them when they when they came to the Lake District. Can I can I press you a bit more about the the sort of the class dimension to this story? Mm-hmm. So you've, we've we've talked about the fact that um, <clears throat> some of the people engaging in these endurance uh, attempts were were the, the professional classes, the, the middle classes, and the upper classes, I guess, and and the difference in in availability of leisure time to the working classes um so uh, but also there's this question that's uh, underpinning the story that's running through at the same time about access to land i guess and and people's be, people being able to access these places but you know the right it's not just the time but the right to go to these places so so what was the sort of response from the working classes to seeing people messing around in hills i suppose and, and having a jolly time uh, when perhaps they were they were not able to yeah, I think we ha- we have to be very clear about chronology here. Um, the mass access of the working classes to the British countryside, you know, was starting in the 1920s and 30s. We had the Kinder mass trespass in in you know in the 1930s, uh, but it, it only became you know really significant, I think, after the Second World War. The period in which we've been talking about, just prior to the First World War. Access to the hills was uh, largely the preserve 
of the middle classes and the upper middle classes. It's people with leisure time, as I said before. You know, there are some exceptions. You know, in the 1920s, we're starting to see groups of more working class climbers coming out of places like Barrow and Furness, the formation of clubs like the Coniston Tigers Club um, came out of Barrow. Um, and a lot of these people are upper working class, lower middle class, blue collar professionals, you know, with skills who are accessing their local hills. And that would go on all over the industrial cities of the north, you know, Bradford, Manchester, Sheffield and things like this. The crucial limiting factor is the world of work and how much leisure time, how much holiday time you have to actually get away. There were, um, you know, working class climbers from, from Barrow used to cycle into the Lake District, 30 mile round trips, go winter mountaineering all all weekend and then cycle back home again. You know, they were a pretty hardy breed. But um, I think largely these, these um, endurance events that we're talking about were on the whole, you know, kind of middle class um, aspirations. Yeah. And what, and what sort of equipment were they using? Because one imagines, you know, you see uh, your modern endurance athletes have all sorts of uh, of good stuff and colourful um, colourful apparel. Uh, they didn't have that, did they? No, no. But they were certainly starting to um, use um, lightweight kit. So uh, I know Wakefield was using kind of rugby shirts uh, and plimsolls, which of course a lot of climbers would use as well at the time. Uh, Eustace Thomas engineered his own shoes. I think he cut out the toes of some of his uh, plimsolls, uh, put aeroplane cloth over the toes so his toes didn't rub, uh, put aluminium reinforcements in his shoes with horsehair padding and things like this. Um, he would use um, patented nose expanders, which opened your nostrils so you could get more air into your lungs and things like this. Some people were known to use silk clothing because it was light and warm. Um, so people were really thinking about, um, yeah, kit, you know, and and the difference, you know, the marginal gains you can get over a long distance from having lighter gear, gear that doesn't, you know, chafe and rub and, uh, you know, make management of the feet, you know, incredibly important in terms of these long distance events. Yeah, so there's a very modern kind of approach to equipment going on as well, yeah. And and this this all worked for for Eustace Thomas, didn't it? Because he did manage to break break the record. He was clearly um, an athlete, um, even though he was he was actually reasonably old by this point, wasn't he? I think he was fifty when he started his first attempt in nineteen twenty. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but he was a very determined man. You know, he broke the record again in nineteen twenty two. Um, he had a long running um, kind of. Uh, battle with RTS Chorley, who was uh, at some point the president of the Felon Rock Climbing Club, over who was going to be the first British person to climb all the um, Alpine 4,000 metre peaks, uh, which Thomas was successful in, in, I think, 1928 or something like that, you know, which again is an enormous mountaineering endurance uh, challenge. You know, he employed guides, but he, by that stage, you know, he was a successful businessman, you know, he had the time and the money to pursue uh, these kinds of uh, um, interests. 
Okay, wrapping up. So we've talked about how um, Eustace Thomas specifically um, uh, and, and and a wider movement here in the aftermath of the of the First World War um, uh, had taken an interest in endurance and efforts. And, and we've talked about how we can see that in the psychology of of of, the, of that conflict and the aftermath of that conflict. I, I, I wonder, as I said in my introduction, that we've we've seen a bit of a boom in in attempts to break records in the COVID pandemic. It's a bit different because that's kind of borne out the fact that there weren't any races for these athletes to do, so they were having to come up with their own ideas of what to do. But do you see any parallels, sort of, in in the psychology of, of reaction to a pandemic versus reaction to to a war um, in in a, a growth of interest in massive endurance uh, attempts? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I wonder. I wonder if there's been a turn towards nature, you know, and a sense of our place in nature has been um, changing as we grapple with the problems of climate change and thinking about human survivability, you know, in the Anthropocene, if you like, you know, uh, the existential challenges that we face at the moment uh, could perhaps be seen as you know just as great as something you know as as totalizing as the first world war uh and i do wonder whether um you know there is i always think there's a you know there's when you run through the hills you know there's a sense of in some ways merging with nature you know becoming part of it inscribing yourself on the landscape uh you know creating this kind of um you know, if you break one of these records, you create a kind of mini memorial, you know, to to that effort as well. So I do wonder if there's a kind of exploration of the human place, you know, in nature, in our changing world, you know, in a world that's hugely challenged by, uh, you know, uh, climate change, global warming. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we might be able to draw draw parallels between these kind of existential uh, challenges, you know, human endurance, you know, we could, we could say, you know, is it part of this kind of notion of resilience? You know, how are we going to respond, uh, to this world that has changed utterly, uh, that threatens so many people and so many other, you know, life systems on earth, you know, other living beings. Um, it would be interesting to talk, you know, to some of these, uh, people who've been doing these these long distance events over the last year, you know, and, fi- and find out more about their motivations, because of course some of them have very explicit environmental uh, and ecological messages, uh, you know, attempting to minimise the impact uh, they're having on the planet as um, as endurance runners, professional athletes, you know, have to travel around the world, you know, competing, you know. So I think there is a strong uh, environmental ethic that's apparent in in some of these in some of these uh, attempts before we go one one thing i wanted to talk to you about which i which i forgot was um uh, a lot of this story uh, that we've talked about is quite masculine it's men attempting these these feats um sure. the the mm-hmm. current uh, crop of of ultra endurance athletes um are, are are led in many cases by women women are proving themselves to be very adept at these these very long distance uh, running races was was it uh, was were women able to to engage in this uh, in these ultra distance attempts in the in the interwar period or before? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think we you know we have to be aware of just how um, patriarchal and misogynistic society was 
uh, in the period we're talking about, you know, it's exactly contemporaneous with the uh, struggles for women's suffrage. You know, you only have to see the extent uh, of male opposition to that to understand the barriers there were uh, to women's participation in the hills. There's a great project going on at the moment called Women in the Hills, you know, which is looking at exactly this, you know, the history of women's participation uh, in mountaineering and outdoor pursuits, you know, and, and how it's being experienced today. Um, I have to come back to class again. Women of the upper middle classes, women of the rentier classes, you know, women who didn't have to work uh, were often... Uh, able, enabled to be alpine mountaineers and to, you know, they did some extraordinary things in the 19th century. People like Lizzie LeBlonde and Lottie Dodd and people like this. Um, but it was a very privileged form of access. You know, it was an elite uh, um, uh, form of uh, um, access to the outdoors, you know, not available uh, to most working class women. I think, um, you know, there were certain cultural barriers to uh, women's uh, deportment and physical activity in the outdoors in terms of what you wore. And whilst there was a rational dress movement, you know, particularly in cycling, where women could wear things like knickerbockers and things like this, in mountaineering, you, mountaineering in the 19th century, you know, some women climbed in trousers, but they did it very discreetly and, you know... Um, there's stories of women leaving the hotel in skirts and then changing into trousers when they climbed and then changing back into skirts later on when they came back down to the hotel. So there's all kinds of cultural taboos that are um, put in the way of women's participation. Uh, not least some of them were, you know, kind of scientific medical pseudo theories that would, you know, claimed that women mustn't exert themselves or, you know... Um, there was also, of course, the issue of um, chaperoning and, you know, uh, correct behaviour. Uh, and often, often you find in the mountaineering and outdoor movement, you know, a, enormous freedom granted to women at the time, which they wouldn't have been granted elsewhere to mix, uh, you know, in mixed sex groups. You know, this became a particular issue in the Alps, of course, when you were hiring guides, <laughs> professionals, uh, who were also working class, who you'd be climbing with as a woman, you know, in, in close proximity to for quite a long period of time. So all of these things, you know, made it quite culturally and socially difficult, you know, for all but the most determined women, I think, to participate in these strenuous physical activities. I think, interestingly, it's on the borders of empire, um, that there's other forms of freedom as well for women to find new forms of physical, you know, kind of expression, new leisure cultures. Um, I have come across accounts of an Anglo-Burmese woman who uh, she she climbed trees for uh, naturalists and botanists as part of her work, uh, but she also for leisure climbed um, railway trestle bridges. <laughs> so, you know, an early form of kind of climbing human structures, you know, so... Um, I think there's much, much more work that needs to be done on women's, you know, part, early participation in the outdoor movement. And, and luckily there are people out there researching this now.
Um, one more thing that I was—I I forgot to ask you was um, wh when when these records were broken, when people were attempting these records, how did they how did they prove that they'd got to the top of all the hills they were supposed to? Because they didn't have GPS trackers and fancy watches and things <laughs> like that. What was how could people could people um, dispute that they said been where they said they had? Yeah, it's. I think it was largely taken on trust. I mean, people were keeping records. Uh, you know, the one of the presidents of the Fell and Rock Climbing Club. W.T. Palmer, you know, published on this in the early 20th century, and he certainly had um, um, uh, a, a number of records that had been kept of various attempts. Uh, generally, uh, you quite often ran with a pacer or various other people who would be able to vouch for your um, efforts, uh, you know, but it was very much... Um, uh, taken on trust, you know, and, and underpinned by gent gentlemanly codes of of conduct, as it were. Some records were um, not disputed, but you know, quietly ignored if people uh, thought that um, somebody, um, you know, um, there, there was sometimes a, a kind of a class aspect to this as well. Uh, you know, so there was certainly one attempt on the Lake District 24-hour record in 1916 during the middle of the First World War, um, which a lot of people um, uh, wouldn't countenance, partly because the individual was, you know, um, or possibly because the individual involved was, uh, you know, um, lower middle class or not from the Lake District. But also there might have been a sense that, you know, this wasn't an appropriate um, activity, you know, it was a kind of frivolous leisure activity during, you know, all the fighting in the First World War. Um, so, uh, yeah, their verification, <laughs> you know, was difficult because these these records were largely informal, you know, and the the parameters of these records were still emerging at the time. Really, they they only become firm and fixed really in the 1920s and 1930s in terms of what you have to achieve. <laughs> um in 24 hours so brilliant well thank you very much jonathan westway thank you for your time thank you that was dr jonathan westaway of the university of central lancashire if you'd like to find out more about his research his article on this subject men who can last mountaineering endurance the lake district fell records and the campaign for everest is available as an open access download which you can find a link for in the show notes Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Sir Tom Devine will be answering listener questions about the Highland clearances. <laughs>